Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, as usual. And we're joined by Ashley Marie Preston, activist, organizer, and journalist. There were so many people who otherwise may have had problematic politics before Trump, but he actually shined a light on America, or a mirror, rather, and showed people the ways in which we've all actively put him in office, whether we actually checked his box in the ballot or not. And this episode is the first episode after Britney's wedding. Hey, Brittany, it's Sam. Congrats on your wedding. It's so exciting to see you and Reggie enter this new chapter together. Wishing you a lifetime of nothing but love and happiness. Brittany, just want to say I'm so happy for you. I'm so thrilled for you and Reggie. You are two of the best people I know. I'm so, so, so happy that you found each other. And you bring so much light to so many people's lives including the lives of me and my family. And I can't wait for a lifetime of laughter and a lifetime of jokes and a lifetime of love that you all are going to share. So congratulations on your marriage. So excited for what the future holds. Y'all, Brittany is married. So Brittany and Reggie got married this weekend. It was incredible in New Orleans. It was actually my first second line. I don't even know if Brittany knows that that was the first second line I'd ever participated in was at her wedding. And it was incredible to see them declare their love to each other. I was there when they met five years ago and they actually got married on the anniversary of one of the biggest actions that we ever planned in St. Louis. Brittany looked amazing, y'all, and her vows, she wrote them herself. It was a word. It was Brittany preaching about love and about God. So incredible. So make sure you shout out Brittany. Give her some love. Miss Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Woo 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 woo. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Peck Yeti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at DIY on Twitter. So it's been a fascinating week. There have been lots of developments in the trial of the murder of Botham Jean, a young man who was killed by a police officer in his own apartment in Dallas as he was sitting on the couch and eating ice cream. Amber Geiger, the officer who killed him, said that she thought it was her own apartment and her legal team actually tried to apply the Castle Doctrine, more commonly referred to as a stand your ground law, in order to pursue her case. She was ultimately found guilty of murder by a Dallas jury that was far more diverse than most juries that we see. There are five black folks, five non-black people of color and two white jurors. That jury gave her a 10 year sentence. There's been a lot of discussion about the sentence. There's been a lot of discussion about the actions that followed thereafter, not necessarily about Botham's brother, who said that he forgave ex-officer Geiger and gave her a hug, but also the judge who then gave her a hug and a Bible thereafter. And a conversation about the overwhelming burden of forgiveness that America continues to place on Black people and the public statement that is being made about that, especially from the judge's hug. This was a difficult week in many ways. Brittany wrote something really thoughtful about it, and we were all having our sort of discussions about it between ourselves. But 
I think for me, it is okay to feel conflicted. It is okay to recognize both that this woman who is an agent of the state and who is white, if she were neither of those things, that her sentence would almost certainly likely be harsher than it was. It is okay to realize that there are black and brown and poor people in prison right now for much longer for doing far less. And as someone who dreams of and works toward and aspires to a world in which prisons become increasingly irrelevant, in which harsh sentences become increasingly irrelevant, it is also okay, I think, to realize that like 10 years is a long time to be in prison. I think the problem is that we are so used to seeing sentences of 25, 35, 45, 99 years, life and life without parole, that we have accepted that those punishments are okay and that we should accept them as part of the way we imagine what our criminal legal system looks like. And so thus, 10 years feels like a short amount of time, especially in the context of of what's happened. And so sometimes things don't have clean narratives. I feel conflicted. I feel like she got a much shorter time than she would have if she were someone else. And I'm in prisons all the time, and they're violent, terrible places. And so what I want is not for her to get longer sentences. I want everybody else to get sentences that are not as harsh and draconian as they are. So, But it can often be difficult to hold those multiple truths at once, and I'm trying to juggle all of them. The data is pretty clear that police not only almost never get charged with a crime related to conduct that causes death, So, you know, in the data that we collect spanning 2013 through 18, about 7,000 incidents where police killed somebody, fewer than 1% of all of those cases result in a conviction of any crime of a police officer. And, you know, I frankly was surprised that she even did get convicted, just knowing how rare it can be. But then this is something where almost immediately after we learned of the conviction, we then learn of the sentence length and we see the judge hugging the murderer. And, you know, I've never seen that before. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that it happened in this case, given who was on trial. And, you know, again, when you look at the data, police officers that get convicted get lesser sentences for the same crimes than civilians convicted of those same crimes, right? So this is part of a broader trend. It is part of a broader inequity in the criminal justice system. Just as a side note, what was also interesting about this happening in Dallas is for some reason, you know, when you look at the cases where officers do get charged with a crime following a police shooting or, or other incident where police killed somebody, Dallas actually has the largest number of these cases during that time period. So there have been seven cases where officers have been charged with a crime following a police killing uh, in Dallas County since 2013. And that is the largest number of any county in the country it is larger than Cook County or LA County. LA also has had one case during that time period, uh, larger than any of the counties that make up New York City. There is something interesting going on in Dallas in particular with regard to this. But again, even under those circumstances, the sentence was much shorter than I think what many people were expecting. And the solution is not to push for more strict and draconian sentences in cases where police kill people. I think in many ways it is, can we actually get a system that offers you know, the same level of 
quote unquote support or compassion or uh, a system that doesn't impose life sentences and executions on people as a form of punishment, but one that is more lenient towards everybody, particularly towards communities that have borne the brunt of the criminal justice system over generations, instead of continuing to privilege those who often cause the most harm under the guise of the state. What I feel like a lot of people are forgetting about Amber Geiger is that she is 31. Uh, Amber Geiger is pretty young. She got sentenced to 10 years. And remember that because of truth and sentencing laws, which are a set of laws that we've talked about before, but truth and sentencing laws uh, were done around the same time as a crime bill. And they essentially mandate that a portion of a sentence has to be completed before somebody's eligible for parole. So because of the truth and sentencing laws in Texas, uh, Amber Geiger will serve at least half of those 10 years before she's eligible for parole. Now, what's interesting about the way parole works in Texas is that the victim is a part of the parole process in some ways. So when people had a lot of feelings about the family expressing forgiveness is that remember that that was not just a matter of a public conversation. The family's bent towards forgiveness will probably be important as a matter of the legal process when Amber Geiger is up for parole in five years. Now, if you remember the father and the brother expressed some sort of forgiveness, the mother reminded us about police violence. And remember that this case is really important in the sense that over 90% of officers who are ever even indicted are never convicted. I hope that this sends a message to law enforcement that accountability is real, that there will be a set of consequences for their actions. But remember that there are so many victims of police violence every year whose cases just go cold because the police let them go cold or the system just isn't construed to be in their favor. So as y'all know, the new season of Supreme Court has begun. It is a new session for them to review a number of cases that have reached their stage and that they have agreed to review. Among them are things around abortion rights and DACA, the future of undocumented young people. But one of the things I want to talk about today is the considerations that the court is making for LGBTQ issues. Last week, the court heard three cases, all of which centered around whether or not employers are free under the Constitution to fire people because they are LGBTQ. These cases are essentially bringing into question Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is all about discrimination on the basis of sex. All of the cases are absolutely historic, um, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But one of the cases is pretty unique. It may very well be the first time that transgender attorneys stood in the Supreme Court and made the case on behalf of their own community of trans people. In the Harris Funeral Home versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC, that case in particular questions whether or not an employer is free to fire someone specifically for being trans. If you don't know already, this particular case centers around a woman named Amy Stevens, who is indeed transgender. She revealed in an incredibly brave letter to her employer that for years she had been repressing her truth and not fully living out who she is and coming to work being who she is. So she shared that she'd be coming to work finally and fully as herself. After getting the letter, you guessed it, the employer decided to terminate Amy's employment. She was fired. 
What we have to know is that this case was actually won in a lower court. So the fact that SCOTUS has decided to hear this case effectively challenges that victory, which is a pretty scary thing, especially because it could wreak havoc and have a domino effect broadly on the legal protections that trans people currently enjoy, which, let's be very clear, are already limited. What we also have to know here is that the opposition is not just talking about the applicability of sex discrimination statutes in the Civil Rights Amendment to trans and LGBTQ people. They are going even further than that. The brief that this particular employer who fired Amy filed actually implies that it is, quote, dangerous, dangerous, both for other people and for LGBTQ folks themselves to actually be fully who they are. Let's ruminate on how actually dangerous that kind of rhetoric is. The truth of the matter is this story has finally started to spread over the last week, but far too many people who do not identify as trans or do not belong to the LGBTQ community knew about it, nor were we talking about it. And in so many ways, we have to recognize that this matters for our futures too. Not just because if they come for someone else's freedom, they can come for ours. Not just because as a woman, any crack in the foundation of protecting people on the basis of sex is something that I should care about because it could come for me one day too. We have to care about this simply because this is an important moment to stand up for solidarity. If all of us aren't free, then none of us are free. And at the end of the day, we have to recognize that a government that is okay firing people simply for being fully themselves is not a government that any of us should be okay with. That should continue to be a great shame in this nation until it is corrected. So you all have probably seen the hashtag rise up or rise up October 8th. Continue to follow that hashtag. Continue to tweet it out, even though that date is passed. And follow the ACLU or visit ACLU.org. They are the ones who have been taking on in this case in particular, because listen, LGBTQ rights go far beyond marriage equality. We have to make sure that people are able to operate as their full selves and enjoy basic dignity. Yeah, the Supreme Court taking this case up in the first place is a concerning development, in part because this should be pretty straightforward, right? Like the employer here believes that Amy Stevens is a man and that Stevens is thus forbidden to deny her true sex and that to keep her job, Stevens has to comply with her boss's understanding of how a man should dress and act, which is kind of pretty straightforward sex discrimination, right? You can't make a decision about how you think someone would dress and act based on your conception of what their true sex may or may not be. And as the appeals court said that denied this case in the first place and ruled in favor of Amy Stevens, it said, quote, it is analytically impossible to fire an employee based on that employee's status as a transgender person without being motivated, at least in part, by the employee's sex, which thus would be sex discrimination, which is illegal. So this is going to be a test for the court in many ways to see if the conservative justices can put aside their own political biases and their own ideologies around what they may or may not believe around transgender issues and transgender rights and to apply the law as it is. And you cannot discriminate against someone based on sex. And this is what that would be. 
When I think about these recent conversations about the trans community, the injustices that the community faces and what justice could look like, this is a reminder for me of never confusing a change in conversation with a change in outcome, that we have been talking about the trans community, highlighting the trans community in public in ways that haven't happened ever. And that is a wholly positive thing. Now, when we look at some of the outcomes, though, the outcomes are not great, which is why it's even at the Supreme Court in the first place, is that I was looking at a study done by Trans Equality that was done a couple years ago. It was called Injustice at Every Turn, and I learned things that I didn't even know. The trans community is four times more likely to have a combined household income of less than $10,000 compared to the general population. 41% of people surveyed said that they had attempted suicide compared to 1.6% of the general population. Double the rate of unemployment in the trans community, 90% discrimination on the job. So you look at the data and it is a reminder that the discrimination and the hatred towards the trans community is not simply emotional, not only emotional hatred. It is structural that the systems are actually designed in ways that both allow and encourage hatred and discrimination towards the trans community to both exist and to fester. And part of our work when we see things that we know are not right is that we not only correct them on the personal level, so we check people when they are transphobic, we name it when people are not highlighting people in communities, we make sure that the tables that we build and the rooms that we build are inclusive, but we also check it at the structural level. We also look out and say, is this system actually designed to encourage participation? Is it built to exclude people or include people? What does that look like? Because too often when we only focus on the personal, what we do is that we buy into this narrative that if people made different decisions and they would be treated differently, if people just worked harder, they wouldn't be poor. If people just tried harder, they wouldn't be addicted to drugs. Is that no, these are structural things. And the only way that we'll ever get to justice is focusing on the structure. That's why the Supreme Court case is actually just so important. So my news is about Baltimore, where state's attorney Marilyn Mosby has just this past week announced that she is beginning the process of wiping out 790 convictions made by 25 different Baltimore police officers. And many of these officers were the ones that were involved in the gun trace task force complete debacle where it was uncovered that a number of Baltimore police officers were robbing people, stealing people's cash and planting drugs on people. In one case, they planted a BB gun on somebody. They were falsely arresting people and they got caught. And a number of the officers, both some who were charged criminally in those cases and others who were involved but not charged and remain on the force, those officers have been flagged by state's attorney Mosby and their convictions are getting wiped out. And the people who have been convicted as a consequence, who had been falsely arrested, who were convicted by officers that are completely untrustworthy. Now, if this process ends up ultimately resulting in these convictions being successfully wiped away again, a judge has to rule on this. But if that ruling goes in Marilyn Mosby's favor, their convictions will be erased and the burden of those unfair and violent law enforcement practices will be lifted, at least for those individuals to some extent. This is really important because it is happening in part because the state's attorney lobbied aggressively this past legislative session in the Maryland legislature in order to pass a law granting her the authority to begin this process. And it's also a reminder of how prosecutors can play a role in identifying the police officers that have 
some of the most egregious records of misconduct and taking action to alleviate at least some of the harm caused to people who've been falsely arrested and otherwise harmed by the criminal justice system and by these officers in particular. What's going to be interesting to see over the next several weeks and months is how the city deals with this issue of money. So 790 criminal cases, 790 people, that is an enormous amount of people who have experienced wrongdoing at the hands of the Baltimore City Police Department. And more than a dozen of them have already sued the city. Dozens more have given notice of their intent to sue. And potentially hundreds more people could sue when these plaintiffs are seeking out tens of millions of dollars. And what's happening now is that the city is trying to say that there is a limit of how much they can pay or will be able to pay or are willing to pay to the plaintiffs who are seeking material and financial amends from what's happened. And folks are going to court now to see, like, does the city have to pay for it? Is there a cap on how much they do have to pay? Does this money have to come from somewhere else? Because it has the potential to be hundreds of millions of dollars paid out. And I am curious about what will happen here, because I think it'll also set a precedent for other cities. I mean, you know, we have examples of what this looks like in different places. I'm not sure at this scale, you know, in Chicago, there are payments that have been made to people who were tortured at the hands of the Chicago Police Department. And I believe that they got a payout and are maybe still getting money or I'm not clear on that. But this has happened in different ways throughout the country, but I don't know if it's ever happened on this scale. So keep an eye out for what's going on in this front because other cities are certainly going to be taking notice. Here's the thing. You think about it, 800 convictions, 25 officers. A Baltimore City Police Department is the eighth largest police department in the country. And you and I both know that Baltimore is not the eighth largest city in the country. A lot of police officers on the force. And if 25 officers can make this much damage, then there begs the question to say, are these the only officers? And, you know, the reality is, is that we don't know right now because Baltimore City government has publicly said that they are not engaging in a deep review of the police department because they don't want to open the police department up to liability. That's what they said. And they said that their job is to protect the client and the client is a police department. Now one would think that the client would actually be the citizens of Baltimore, that the government exists for the citizens, that the police department at best exists for the citizens that every department exists to serve the people. But what they said really candidly is that the government actually exists to serve itself, that this actually isn't about the public. This is not about the people. And it really is a shame that city elected officials allow the city solicitor and the mayor to say those things and to go unchallenged. That is a travesty in and of itself. Now, here's the thing about the do not call list. Do not call lists are not new. Marilyn Mosby didn't make the list. She's not the first person to do the list. In cities all across the country, there's a do not call list. What Mosby did that's important is that she's willing to make the list public and to vacate the convictions. As was already said, she did work on legislation to allow that to happen. Now, the hard part about this and why this is only a partial victory, it is certainly a victory for people whose convictions are going to be vacated. But remember that these things almost never lead to any accountability or discipline within the police department. So these police officers are essentially fine. They can't go to court anymore. They can still arrest. They might get put on desk duty. Their pensions are unchallenged. They are fine in the grand scheme of things. If anything, they might just have an easier job because they won't get sent out to deal with anybody in the public or any supposed crisis. And that is a real tragedy. There's no other public sector job. Like, could you imagine in a school system if we had a list of teachers who were harming kids and we were just like, you know what? List is private. Hope your kid doesn't get harmed. If they do, we'll just rotate them. That would be unacceptable. But when this police officer's lying, stealing, we're just like, you know what? 
We just won't call him to testify. That's the only consequence. That can't, that doesn't even make sense. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nuh-uh. Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So for my news, I want to talk about something troubling that's going on in prisons across the country, but there's a particular story in Alabama that is deeply unsettling. And so there's a story of this guy, Michael Tidwell, and he has diabetes and his blood sugar 
was reading at least 15 times what his normal level is when sheriff deputies took him to the hospital. But before they loaded the person into the back of the car, deputies propped up his slumping body and handed him a pen so he could ostensibly sign the release from the Washington County Jail. Tidwell later said that, quote, I could barely stand up or even keep my eyes open. He also later said that he didn't know what he was signing at the time and that he lost consciousness not long after they made him sign this document. And the consequences of this only became clear in the weeks that followed. So what happened is by signing this document, which freed him on bond from the small jail in South Alabama, Tidwell had, in essence, agreed that the Washington County Sheriff's Office would not be responsible for his medical costs, which included two days he spent in a diabetic coma in an intensive care unit at Spring Hill Medical Center in Mobile, Alabama. Tidwell was on the receiving end of a practice referred to by many in law enforcement as a medical bond, and sheriffs across Alabama are increasingly deploying the tactic to avoid having to pay when people in prison and jail face medical emergencies or require extensive and expensive procedures, even ones that are necessary only because of things that happened to them while they were in prison and the inadequate care that they received while they were incarcerated. What's even more egregious is the fact that once many of these folks recover, a number of them are quickly rearrested and booked back into jail and prison after they have been released. Several Alabama sheriffs interviewed about this issue said that they often find ways to release inmates with sudden health problems to avoid responsibility for the medical costs. They've said this directly. And when I came across this, I was reminded that when we talk about jails, when we talk about prisons, when we talk about the carceral state, the arguments around it cannot solely be in terms of economics. They cannot solely be in terms of the financial impediments that a larger carceral state is putting on our society. Because what happens is that you have some folks who are like, oh, we're spending too much money on jails, we're spending too much money on prisons, we need to cut the cost. And they can make it seem as if they are thus in support of putting less people in prison or building less prisons or building less jails. But instead, what happens is that you have lots of people who find ways to cut costs in other ways. So they get lower quality food, inadequate health care, or fail to provide health care at all, as they do in this context. And so I think what's going on in Alabama is horrendous on this front. And I'm really glad that ProPublica, which has been doing so much great work, um, so much deep investigative journalism on some of the most overlooked issues in our society, has brought this to light. So Clint, I wasn't aware that this was happening in Alabama. I know, you know, more broadly, that according to a report from the Brennan Center, there are 39 states that require folks who are incarcerated either in jails or prisons or both to pay some portion of their health care through co-pays. Some folks, after being released from prison or jail, they have to incur a substantial amount of debt because of health care that they receive, which often is poor quality health care. In 2014, an analysis by the Pew Charitable Trust found that states spend $7.7 billion on prison health care, and it's about one-fifth of overall prison expenditures. So as we're seeing mass incarceration continue, especially in jails, four times more people go to jail every year than go to prison. We're seeing jails become places where folks are warehoused, where folks who have mental health issues are being warehoused instead of getting treatment, where folks who have healthcare issues are getting either poor quality treatment that they're paying money for, a lot of money for, or are just getting apparently just dumped in places where they have to pay a substantial amount of money and then reincarcerated right afterwards. And this whole system is set up to exploit people, not to provide people with the services that they need or the support that they need, but rather to figure out ways to save money on continuing to warehouse people for longer periods of time. 
I've learned more about sheriffs in the past couple of years than I had ever thought about. You know, people often think about police as sort of just police, but police chiefs in almost every city are appointed in some way. They're appointed by the mayor, appointed by the city council. The accountability for a police chief actually rolls up to somebody who was elected. Sheriffs are different because sheriffs are actually elected by the people directly. Now, this might seem like a great thing, but the hard thing about sheriffs is that most people don't even think about them. The second is that in most places, they do a host of things like deliver warrants, they evict people, they do protective orders, like they do a host of things that you just think the police are doing, but the sheriffs are actually doing them. And this matters because of the way accountability either does or does not work. Is that when the sheriff does something wrong, you think about Arpaio in Arizona, is it because the sheriff's elected, there's really not a recourse for citizens. The only recourse is the next election. So There's not a body to lobby to. There's not a process of accountability, like meetings that the sheriff might have to come to where there are public hearings. Like that's not built into the role of sheriffs because of the way the roles were configured. In some places, they are in the constitution of the state. In some places, they're in city charters. It's just like people weren't paying attention to the role. And it is a huge role to think about. Now, there are some things that I learned that I didn't know is that in California, for instance, there are 41 counties where the sheriff is actually the coroner. And that matters because you've seen coroners on TV. Coroners are the people who decide the official cause of death. Well, we have proof that in some places, the sheriffs are like, you know what? That's not a homicide. Nope. The police didn't actually kill that person. That person died of natural causes. And it is the sheriff's sole power to decide the cause of death. Now, there are even cases where the medical examiner and the sheriff have disagreed. Now, the medical examiner is a medical professional who completes the autopsy and the sheriff will just overrule that person. It's like that is a wild power. So when you look at some of this data coming out, Again, the reminder is always to question the data. And the other thing about sheriffs that I didn't know is that there are a group of sheriffs called the constitutional sheriffs. There are about 500 of them across the country. And what they have said is that they just won't enforce laws that they don't agree with, namely gun laws. And again, this matters because the whole point of saying that we're a country of laws is that the laws are enforced. So you imagine like what happens if we actually do pass gun control and the sheriffs are like, you know what, carry a gun whenever you want to, or I'll only enforce it with black people. Again, there's no recourse for citizens because they're elected. So we just have to pay much more attention to the sheriff's role, much more attention to those people in those offices, and much more attention to whether we need the role at all. Now, my news is about a study that was recently published in the JAMA Network Open, and it is about the relationship between trauma and children who are young adults with a childhood history of both parental incarceration and juvenile justice involvement. What they found is that young adults who were either juvenile justice involved, like they were in some part of the juvenile justice system, or their parents were incarcerated, one or both parents were incarcerated, that they were nearly three times more likely to have depression or post-traumatic stress disorder compared to peas without any experience with the criminal justice system. And that those young people are also nearly twice as likely to have anxiety compared to young adults without childhood exposure to incarceration. Now, this matters because there are about 5 million U.S. children who have had a parent incarcerated. And those children are estimated to be involved in the juvenile justice system themselves at three times the rate of their peers without a parent who's been involved in the criminal justice system. And I wanted to bring this here because often when we talk about direct impact, we talk about the people who are incarcerated themselves. We talk about the number of people incarcerated a year. We talk about the number of unique incarcerations. We talk about the prison population, jail population, which matters. We have to keep talking about that if we're ever going to get to decarceration. The other thing, though, is that we have to expand the way we think about the scope of what impact actually looks like. That, like, everybody who touches somebody who's incarcerated is also impacted. So when a parent goes away to prison, the kid is impacted. 
loved ones, spouses, brothers, sisters, cousins, like there is an impact on communities. And I'm thankful that studies are now able to flesh out what we've already known. And I hope that this will lead to us being much more mindful of the way that we build supports and resources. You think about, you know, I used to work in school systems, Clint, Brittany, we all worked with kids, is that it changes communities when parents are snatched away. It changes communities when uncles and brothers and sisters are no longer present who have been there for a kid's whole life. That matters. And classrooms can do their part to help every kid have a safe and loving environment but we need to make sure communities actually don't have to deal with the trauma in the first place. So I wanted to bring this here so we talked about it. So a few weeks ago in September, I was on a panel about the effect of the incarceration crisis on families with an organization called Forward US. They've done a lot of research, particularly on how the carceral state affects the family unit. And they found out some frankly terrifying information What they found out is that one in two adults, one in two adults across America has had a family member incarcerated in jail or prison. I am absolutely one of those one in two adults. One in four adults has had a sibling incarcerated and more connected to your piece and your point, DeRay. One in five Americans have had a parent incarcerated and one in seven have had a spouse or a co-parent incarcerated. And so what that means is that there are missed milestones. There is the internalization of negative messages that children breathe in all the time. There's disconnection, isolation that leads to all of the things that you're talking about. But I will say I met a young woman on that panel named Ebony Underwood. Ebony is very open about the fact that her father has been incarcerated for a number of years and remains incarcerated. And she wanted to take that power back. And so she founded We Got Us Now, which, as she says, is a national movement built by, led by, and about children and young adults impacted by parental incarceration. So we talk all the time about the fact that the most affected need to be central to the leadership of movements to create justice. And this is precisely what We Got Us Now is. They've been doing a great deal of lobbying and advocacy work on a bill called the Second Look Bill. That bill is essentially aimed at supporting the release of aging incarcerated parents. So a few episodes ago when Sam reminded us that the average sentence at Angola is 90 years, There are a number of people who were incarcerated at very young ages who had children, were separated from their children, separated from their families, and have been in jail for so long that they are completely and wholly different people uh, and are continuing to age. Even as we think about the last conversation that we had about the number of medical needs that people have as they age, people want to be reconnected with their families. People want to be able to have their families care for them, to build relationships and bonds with their children, especially when it is far past time for the state to continue to incarcerate them. So give a look at wegotusnow.org. Give a look to uh, the second look bill and know that there are many, many young people who, as this research comes out about how they are affected, are working diligently to take their power back. This is really important because I think that the children of incarcerated people are often forgotten when we give these numbers. 2.3 million people in jail and prison at any given time, when we give the 11 million people who cycle in and out of jail every year, like what is not captured in those numbers are the millions of children whose parents are incarcerated and whose lives are subsequently destabilized as a result of not being with their parents, right? Destabilized psychologically, financially, socio-emotionally, the list goes on and on. 
And I've been thinking about this a lot because, as you all know, I teach creative writing at D.C. Jail. And D.C. is the only place that doesn't have a state prison because it is not a state. And so what happens is typically when people go from jail to prison, they are sentenced to a state prison. And so they are incarcerated in the same state where they live, ostensibly making it easier for family and friends to visit them. But for D.C., folks are sentenced to federal prison. And so they go to California or Iowa or New Mexico or any place across the country where there are federal facilities, and it makes it almost impossible for their families to visit them. And the way that you most effectively reduce recidivism is to allow people to maintain strong connections with their family, friends, and loved ones so that then when they get out, they have strong social networks and support networks. And I think about this in terms of the young people, like so many of the folks that I work with who are waiting for their sentence, there's like this enormous fear that they don't know when they're going to see their kids again, right? They're going to be sent somewhere for decades on the other side of the country and not necessarily know when they'll see their child's face again. And I I just think that that's something that we don't often consider when we think about the totality of the harm that incarceration does to so many people. And and it's something that's important for us to keep in mind. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. And now my conversation with Ashley Marie Preston. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Thank you for having me. I'm happy that you were able to join us today because there's so much to talk about. The first is, you know, I know that you are an organizer. I know that you were the first transgender editor-in-chief of a national publication, where your voice, and then you ran for state office in 2018. So I want to talk about all those things. But can we just start with, you know, people conflate organizing and activism all the time. How do you think about those two in terms of your work? I think they are two completely different things, actually. (laughs) And I know for me personally, I would, interestingly enough, I don't consider myself as either. And I'm going to explain why. I feel like that an organizer is someone 
that actually uh, takes on the nuts and bolts of a movement. So they're not just necessarily the people that are pretty much doing the groundwork, but they're also the people that are the think tanks behind some of these uh, movements. I think that there's a lot that goes into that that I don't know that they always have the support system that they can lean on. So they're pretty much the go-to for everything and everyone. Versus like an activist, I think they are typically people who plug into the work that's already being done and they help carry out the day to day. Um, The reason why I have such a strange relationship with activism is I feel like there's an element of it that implies that I have a choice. I think a lot of it for me is survival. If I don't fight, if I don't advocate, if I don't speak up, if I don't stand up, then I cease to exist. So that's just pretty much what it is for me. Like, it's unfortunate because some of the people who are being deemed activists are often uh, gatekeeping and they're actually um, an impediment to our progress in many ways because media and some of the other uh, game changers who can step in and help us steer movement work in the direction that it needs to go in, they're not really checking for the people sometimes that are doing the grassroots work. They're checking for these people who are models, influencers, and, and that's not to say that they can't use their platform for the good because they are just as much of an important part of the space as anything else. However, I think it's important for these people who are speaking on behalf of entire movements to make sure that they have the education and the actual uh, mission and that they have the idea of the mission under their belt and that there is a cohesive message being uh, disseminated. What are the issues that are top of mind for you in terms of how you spend your time? Like, What are the sort of the nuts and bolts issues that you're like, if we can solve, fix, transform, change, uh, these are your core things. Oh, my God. Listen, (laughs) I am a black trans woman in America. And so each intersectional layer of my identity makes it so that I'm always doing all types of work. So for me, it's always going to be uh, racial justice first because I'm black before anything else. Then there are obviously women's issues and then more specifically uh, trans women. I know that many of us have been seeing the headlines around black trans women being murdered and it is a growing uh, epidemic, not necessarily an uptick because I think it's always been happening, but I think now media has a focus on it right now. And so for me, I think that I always try to imagine what justice could look like across the full spectrum, racial justice, immigrant justice, economic justice, health care, even political, making sure that we have representatives in office who are going to uh, best reflect the America that we live in. Let's jump to the 19 trans women who have been killed this year. And I think you're right. We think about it, too, with the police. So, like, people think about these numbers as upticks. And it's like, it's actually probably always been bad. It's probably worse than we even know. I think social media has definitely helped shed a light on these particular issues around identity, around trans women being killed, or certainly around black trans women being killed. What do we do to stop it? Um, I think more than anything, the best way to be an ally is to ask those who are directly being impacted and just understanding that we aren't a monolith and that it's going to look different for each person. One of the biggest challenges is (laughs) uh, LGBTQ Inc., 
LGBTQ Inc. are these organizations who uh, use the stories of uh, black trans women as trauma porn. And so they uh, use our stories to solicit donor dollars. But then when it all comes down to it and the trickle down takes place, we get the bare minimum of any of that money, those donations, those services. When we get swept under the LGBTQ rug, what happens is that we know that gay white men, that gays and lesbians, that all of these other people at the top of the social totem pole are going to get access before we do. And in many cases, they're cutting the line and getting seconds and thirds before black trans women get first. And so I feel like a lot of our narrative is being sanitized and it's kind of being edited for these Disney-esque kind of (laughs) presentations and packaging. And when it all comes down to it, a lot of times these organizations just aren't serving us. And so going back to your question, like what can we do to help black trans women or trans women of color in general? And I think it's actually going to some of the grassroots organizations who are on the ground, who are actually doing the work, letting us speak for ourselves and tell our own stories. No one can tell our stories better than we can. And so what happens is that, again, there are a lot of people who... And some of the organizations aren't really thinking for it. So media, when they cover our deaths, they always talk about, you know, us being shot. But nobody ever talks about the circumstances that place us in front of the barrel of the gun. And so when we start looking at the actual barriers to progress, they're barriers to access. So it's a hard time accessing employment, accessing housing, accessing social support, accessing trauma-informed care, which is a branch of health care, but it's something very specific because even when you get us that housing and these jobs, we've had so much trauma and we're navigating PTSD that we don't know how to get through some of those things so that we can be successful in these opportunities. And so these are the things that I started to unpack in the campaign that I did, the Thrive Over 35 campaign. Is this also why you ran for office? This idea that the nonprofit space isn't going to be the space potentially that fixes all the problems that plague society, that some of it will have to be structural. Why did you run for the state assembly last year? So it was really interesting. Um, It was actually a special election. So it wasn't something that I had necessarily, I had thought about running for office. So many people (laughs) told me to run for office. And in my mind, I think of, the saying that master tools won't dismantle the master's house. So it's one of those things where it's like, am I going to be able to fix the problem from inside the belly of the beast? And because I have a lot of ideas and opinions about establishments, but in that moment, (laughs) there were so many things that had already transpired uh, with the 2016 election and no one in their right mind would have ever thought that Trump would have been president. And when that happened, It kind of helped me to expand my understanding of politics and these more specifically respectability politics that I later come to realize are authored by people who never respected us, nor will they ever. And so I realized that if this guy can do it, I can definitely do it, especially since there were so many people who otherwise may have had problematic politics before Trump, but he actually shined a light on America or a mirror rather and showed people the ways in which we've all actively put him in office, whether we actually checked his box in the ballot or not. And so I went for it and I had community support. And one of the things that I quickly found out was that 
sometimes we're our own worst enemy (laughs) because I knew for me running meant talking about issues from a first-person perspective that a lot of candidates or most candidates can't. Because I know that to run for office, you know, you can't have a criminal record. You can't... There's all these different things that would prevent most trans people from running, but I don't have a record. I don't have any, like, scandals or anything that anybody can expose me on because my entire platform is about me being an open book and talking about my experiences in a way that are going to be a light at the end of the tunnel for other people who are also struggling. And I was talking about things that they weren't ready for. I was talking about recidivism and talking about a prison to job pipeline and talking about homelessness and mental health and drug addiction and talking about some of the Me Too things that were happening, not just in the political sphere, but also that were happening on college campuses. And I was coming out with these solutions um, that were talking about uh, gerrymandering and like really breaking it down, like what that meant and how mass incarceration and gentrification and rising rents and all of these things were working in concert to crush communities of color and uh, negatively impact historically disenfranchised people. And I mean, most politics aren't ready for that. And then I had people telling me from the black establishment, you know, you're young, sit down, just wait your turn. Why don't you join the board here or this board or this committee or this? Because this is what we do. It becomes this game of musical chairs where, you know, it's your turn, then it's my turn, then it's my turn. But at the end of the day, there's a complicity to that. That means that all of the things that are happening that continue to underserve these communities are essentially planned. And the reason they're not changing is because the people who can change them are still a part of this agreement that if you just sit down, keep your mouth shut and play by the rules, you will get your turn someday. And so I ran for office because I wanted to break that. You know, I ran for office in 2016. And one of the things that I loved the most was meeting people just like canvassing and that sort of stuff. How is that for you? What were the things that you heard from people when you went to forums or community events or knocked on doors? Even as I'm sitting here right now uh, with these (laughs) big old Mariah shades on, (laughs) it brings tears to my eyes, honestly, because a lot of my worth that, I mean, I've always known that I've had worth and that like I had something and that I was special, but seeing the hope in people's eyes that someone could possibly take a seat that actually had their best interest in mind was awe-inspiring to them. And I got to listen to the stories that people who didn't look like me, people who didn't come from the same background as I came from, people who even have a whole set of different beliefs than me. But just in those moments, it gave me an opportunity to really tap into humanity the basic concept of humanity. I think for so long, we've been caught up in all of this back and forth and divisive rhetoric and all of these battles that we often don't get the opportunity to take time to reassess and evaluate what's important to us. And so running for office and Having people believe in me enough to donate to my campaign, having people believe in me enough to knock on doors with and for me, having people believe in me enough to make phone calls for me. I think it was the love that I needed in that moment because I had even more recently uh, lost my grandmother. I mean, my grandmother was my entire 
world. You know what I mean? And my best childhood memories, which were very few, (laughs) had uh, my grandmother at the center. And so in a weird way, as I was running for office, my supporters they nurtured me the same way that I showed up for them. They showed up for me in return. Do you think you'll run again? You know, (laughs) everybody has been asking me that uh, more specifically since I became a surrogate for Elizabeth Warren. There's so many people who are asking me like, are you going to run? I think that there is a huge shift in politics right now. And it's one that may have room for people like me who are unapologetic Um, I say what it is. I don't sugarcoat it. I think there is a way to be thoughtful about how we say things. But I think, again, there's just something about conventional politics that just don't feel right for me because it requires me to put on a face and to have this, like, I don't know, this facade that isn't authentic And I think that the very core of who I am is authenticity. So the answer is I don't know. What I do know is that when I do, I'm coming in with the militia. Because even when I ran for this state office, so I had a campaign manager. And they were working with me. They were like, you know what? We know that you're kind of struggling on some of your fundraising even because, to be honest with you, The main people who would benefit from me being in that seat are the people who can't always afford to fund that campaign. You know, and it's something that we don't think about. Like, it's like, yeah, we're representing all of these people, but it's like, who is going to be the ones who can fund that campaign? And it's always going to be the people who are going to have the problem with my message because I'm coming for their edges, scalp, and entire wig. And so because of that... It made it very difficult and challenging. And so I had this campaign manager that was like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Here, uh, we'll get this flight. You can pay me back when you get caught up on the campaign and things like that. Well, here's the thing. When I was on the way to speak at Yale, I got a call from someone from uh, my campaign. And they were like, there was something that happened on the paperwork We don't know who was supposed to submit that. And I was like, well, I think that's supposed to be like my campaign manager. Like he said he would take care of that. And they were like, to be honest with you, that missed the deadline out. You won't be able to be on the ballot. And I never actually talked about this. This is the first time I've actually talked about this. Teen Vogue wanted to do a piece on it. And I told them that I wanted to hold off because I was emotionally still trying to recuperate from it. So this is like legit and exclusive. The truth. This is what happened. (laughs) Paperwork got screwed up. And I feel that it was intentional also mainly because when I reached out to him, I never heard from him again. Whoa. It became a very strong question as to whether my campaign manager was actually in the pocket of Sidney Kamagardov. That devastated me so bad, Dre. It devastated me. It crushed me. That broke my heart just hearing that. I, that is... So you weren't on the ballot at all? No, because at that point, Ashley. they were like, you can do a write-in. And so at that point, I had to make the very difficult decision that I'm sure that every strong leader that's truly doing what they're doing for the people has to come to a decision around. And it was whether I keep staying, keep taking donations, and I keep all of this up and keep running around, 
or I just go ahead, (laughs) step away from this and wait for a time where I'm going to be fully prepared and the climate allows. And so that is why when people ask me if I would run again, my heart says yes. But the pain and the trauma that I experienced from that says, who can I trust? And so it was a rude awakening that I got that, A, the political sphere is very ageist because I got so much discrimination because I was too young to them. And the other piece was that even in the Democratic Party, which I can talk, (laughs) but just this idea that when we talk about racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, all these forms of discrimination, we reserve that for the GOP. And it most certainly is not exclusive to that party. It's not a partisanship thing. I think that there was a veil that was lifted from my eyes and it was one that I just wasn't ready for. And I'm a girl from the street, so I'm hardly caught off guard. And that, (laughs) that caught me off guard. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, that I felt, I'm feeling that. That is, that's real. Let's keep talking about electoral politics. Um, Why Warren? Why anybody, actually? So there are a lot of people who would say that your role, especially as a content expert, even if you don't identify as an activist in the way that you talked about, you are somebody who is certainly a content expert and staying neutral at this point could help you push all the candidates further and da 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 I think about all the things that people said to me. But why did you choose Warren? So basically, I had met um, with uh, several candidates. I had met with Marion Williamson, uh, Buddha Judge, Booker. Like, I had met with, like, different people. And so I actually, when I met with her up in Oakland uh, the night before the KDM convention up in San Francisco, I was like, I never thought I would live to see two black candidates and I vote for the white woman from Oklahoma. Like, I never, (laughs) and she busted out laughing, And I think what it is, is that first and foremost, I'm of the Zora Neale Hurston school of thought that all skin folk ain't kin folk. So just because someone necessarily looks like me or talks like me doesn't necessarily mean that we have the same strategies or ideals around what it's going to take to help us thrive. That being said, Warren wasn't afraid to pull up her sleeves. And fight. I mean, be scrappy with it. Like, I mean, like, I know that people are like, yeah, but Bernie's like that, too. The thing is that she can go up to the board and actually show her work. I had never, like, I'm a numbers person. Like, don't tell me an idea. Don't try to tap into this frothy emotional appeal to manipulate me by emotion. But really show me how this thing is going to work. And Elizabeth Warren, because of her uh, background in academia and because she's a professor who, you know, she knows all about economics. And in fact, when people try to shade her with the fact that she used to be a Republican, it's like, that's not shade, sis. Like, what that says is that you were a part of this system that when you did the work and you pulled back the covers on this whole thing, you realize that you were a part of the problem and you quickly course corrected. Not only did she course correct, 
Then she started building out these like uh, bodies that were responsible for protecting consumers and protecting homeowners. And she had even predicted the crash in 2008. And like literally there's all of these receipts there that this woman knows her stuff. She knows what she's talking about. And more importantly, she's willing to speak up and talk about systemic racism and how it exists in the corporate sector and healthcare. She talked about black women and infant mortality rates and was talking about reproductive justice. And I mean, talking about all of these things that I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's BET special you've been watching? Like, <laughs> And then I met her campaign, mostly black women. She has brown people. She has LGBTQ queer folks, trans folks. Her campaign looks like the America that I will be proud to live in. And I think that's important because often when you pull back the covers on some of these other campaigns, they're saying some of the right things because someone's doing the research, but their actual campaign doesn't reflect the people that they're speaking to. And the thing about her (laughs) is that she's just... I don't know. She's just oaky. She's just super like she reminds you of somebody's grandmother who will like sit you down, make your favorite cookies, tell you your family's history and then tell you their hopes and aspirations for you. And I think she can do that for America. I really do. Boom. I want to ask you, too, about what do we do about media representations of trans women? What I will say Again, going back to the whole uh, quote of all my skin folk ain't kin folk, just because someone is trans doesn't mean they're necessarily for trans people. I mean, and this is a conversation we already had ad infinitum around Caitlyn Jenner and all that, but it's not just Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner is just the easier target because Caitlyn Jenner is someone that people can come together to disagree with. But I think that just because you're a trans person doesn't mean you're necessarily a trans activist, nor does it mean you have to take that on. That's a lot of responsibility. However, you don't get to profit off of trans narratives as if you're a representative but behind the scenes you're gatekeeping and you're not doing anything for us so when we're talking about these measures you know legislation and bills and things we're trying to get passed and when we're talking about these black trans women and we're talking you have people sitting up in hollywood who are kicked back living their best life and haven't done a thing Like zero, like they can tap dance and perform, but when it all comes down to doing the actual work, you have people getting credit for work that they're not doing. And I'm just going to, because I swear, like, I don't want to be divisive, but I also don't know how to lie when I'm asked the question. So that being said, when it comes to media representation, I challenge directors, producers, journalists, news networks, all of these people to stop being lazy, intellectually lazy, or their assistants or the people who do the research and actually start delving into these communities and spaces to find out who the really key players are. Because what happens is that, again, going back to these people, there are so many allies, I believe from the bottom of my heart, 
heart who want to do the right thing. But what happens is when you have these people that are gatekeepers and they're kind of presenting themselves as the spokespeople, if they aren't saying the right things and if they aren't tapping other people to keep those conversations and perspectives fresh, they're doing a great disservice to the community. So yes, visibility is important, but what are you doing while you're visible? And I think that's the question. When we're talking about media, it's important for us to create our own media, which is why I also applaud you for the work that you've done. I also had a podcast before and I'm currently working on a show and it's like people like us, people like you, so important because when you create your own platform to share uh, these stories, it takes away the opportunity for someone to co-opt it and to manipulate the framing of it. And I think that that's been the biggest lesson is that when we talk about invisibility in media, how are those optics being controlled? So I'll ask you the two questions that I ask everybody. First is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I'd have to say the first thing is an expectation is a resentment in embryo. And there was a moment in my life where I just found myself being so angry (laughs) because I had so many expectations of what people should do and how they should show up and like, and, and, and. And when I started to realize that no one owes me anything, it makes the people who show up and do what they do shine so much brighter. And that's how I move throughout the world. So that's the first thing. And the second piece of advice comes from an actual Dr. Seuss uh, piece, and it's that the people who matter don't mind, and the people who mind don't matter. Just realizing that you're not going to always be for everybody, and that's perfectly fine, but you should never have to compromise who you are to fit into someone else's expectation of who you should be. We should never have to shrink our blackness. We should never have to shrink our queerness or transness or however you identify. We deserve to show up in every space fully as who we are, and we deserve to take up space. What do you say to people who say now, like, I tried everything, right? I emailed, I called, I protested, I went to the council meeting. That They did all this stuff, but nothing's changed. What do you say to that? Joy is a weapon. I think what happens oftentimes is when we're doing this work in movement and in political spaces and so forth, we start to believe that liberation is a destination instead of being able to take full advantage of the moment. And I know for me, the thing that weakens people like Trump and the administration and the, is when they see that we're not withering, but they see that we're actually flourishing and we're thriving and we're celebrating and we're finding reasons to exude joy and we're finding reasons to show up for people in cross communities and we're keeping our dreams and hopes and aspirations alive. And I think that that is such an important part of movement work because otherwise you are going to get burnout really, really fast. And so just imagining, reimagining what liberation can look like and when you can experience it. And it's not always in the near future. Sometimes it's in the very present. Thank you for making time for the pod. And I hope to see you in person soon. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.